Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first Black Business Institute, boosting prospects for underprivileged Black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 12 weeks, me and my fellow hosts will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and change makers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd and the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. And here we discuss the importance of balancing both commercial performance with societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections, each one punctuated by the guest's favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. Joining me today, Nicholas Coleridge, CBE Chairman of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Welcome, Nicholas. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Nicholas, your first track that you've picked is Starman by David Bowie. Why? Oh, that was a very defining moment of my life. I would have been about 15, possibly 16, and I was at a boarding school, and I walked into the cafe, and there, on the black and white television, was David Bowie singing Starman. And I was tremendously struck by it. I hadn't seen anything quite like it at all. I think it's, still think it's the most beautiful song. But to me, I thought it was extraordinarily exciting. And I went very shortly afterwards to see him play at the Rainbow in um, Tufnell Park. And I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And I was then, and still remain, a very great... David Bowie fan. I think that sometimes does happen with in your life. Uh, you read a book or you hear a track or you see a movie which shifts your perception of the world and your interest in the world. And I th think I can say, thinking about um, that intense admiration I held for David Bowie for a long time, that it led me to a lot of other things, books that I might otherwise not have read, artists that I came to admire. And so it was a, it was a mind-expanding moment for me. Wonderful. Well, what a great accolade you've played to him. So you have amazing achievements yourself, great accolades to your name. And besides being chairman of the Victorian Albert Museum, you're chairman of the Prince of Wales's Campaign for Wool, chairman of the Gilbert Trust the Arts and Co-Chair of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Pageant, and also an ambassador for the Landmark Trust and a patron of the Elephant family. But just begin life for us a little bit. Talk to us about the very early young Nicholas Coleridge, much loved, born in 
Queen Charlotte Hospital in Hammersmith and grown up in West Sussex. What are your memories of childhood? Well, I was brought up in a extremely conventional, um, I think you would call upper middle class family in that my family were um, not immensely, we weren't hugely rich, but they, we were very lucky. Um, and I had a very comfortable childhood. Um, I think it would be seen today as a very sheltered childhood, and of course far more sheltered than that that my own children have had um, uh, 40 years later. Um, for the purposes of this um, podcast, I grew up in an entirely white society. Um, all of my parents' friends would have been. Um, I don't think I grew up at all in a prejudiced society. I don't think we did. We just didn't know anyone that wasn't uh, pretty much like ourselves. And almost everybody that I, my parents would have known would have been conservative voters to a person. There would have been no one who wasn't. Um, but I don't want to give any sense that it, that, that it was narrow or bigoted. It wasn't. We lived in uh, London for until I was about 11, and then we moved to West Sussex, and we lived at the end of a long lane in a nice house, and we did what we did. Um, and I had a very, very happy childhood, and I wish everyone could have had as happy a childhood as I had. My parents were extraordinarily nice. My father, who died this year on um, Boxing Day, was a very considerable, actually, later in his life, city tycoon figure. But not when I was growing up. You know, he was working hard and working his way up um, in his uh, business. But I never felt any pressure, um, either as a child or as a teenager, to conform to any particular uh, stereotype, in that I remember my dad saying to all three of his sons, um, do whatever you want to do in life. Um, just do whatever you want to do as long as you enjoy it. Don't think you have to do the same kind of thing that I did, um, because if you do, you will probably not enjoy it. You just follow your heart. And I think that was very good advice to give. Um, and I would hope I'd been saying the same thing to our four children. Because um, I, I think the most important thing that you can do is find things that you, that you love and are enthusiastic about. And then if you're able, if you're lucky enough to be able to make a whole career out of it um, and, and a life out of it and a living out of it, that is probably the most fortunate way that you can live uh, one's 85 years on this planet. Wow, that's amazing, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank you for that. You, Your parents were wise enough to send you to the same boarding school as Boris Johnson to Ashdown House. And as you, you remember your boarding school, I love mine. As you remember yours, what, what, are your, what are your beloved memories? Well, I went to this school called Ashdown House. I'm older than Boris Johnson, so we didn't over, overlap. Um, though I suspect it was very much the same school. To be honest with you, it was not a very happy time for me at that school. Um, these were different days. Um, this was the 1960s. It was a very conventional world. There was rather a terrorizing um, headmaster. Um, and it was in a sort of period when all the words that we're now so used to 
safeguarding um, kind of the, the careful selection of teachers going through some sort of <laughs> psychological and background checks. None of that was the case there. And there were, it must be said, some extremely dodgy players in the pack um, who I suspect had um, taken the job precisely because they rather enjoyed the proximity to, um, to, to, to young guys. That said, um, nothing terrible happened to me. It just was, in my mind, a period that wasn't an especially fulfilling one. Uh, it was, uh, I had arrived at the school reasonably bright, but actually I became thicker and stupider the longer that I was there. And um, I, I didn't feel massively encouraged in anything that I was, was taught. And actually, I was very bad at many things. I was never a linguist, and I'm still not. I was no good at science. I'm not really a mathematician, though I can now read a, um, a, a set of accounts perfectly well um, with using common sense. That I get these days. But, um, but, but I, I can't pretend that I was especially inspired at that school. That, that came later. Um, when, when I moved on uh, to my next school, um, where the world rather opened up for me, um, certainly from when I was about 16 onwards. I think if you met me pre the age of perhaps 15, you would have met quite a shy person who was not confident um, and probably sensed myself to be not especially talented or gifted, um, and maybe um, slightly um, no, embarrassed is the wrong word, but certainly unsure of myself as a result. And then from about 15 onwards, uh, ev everything changed for me, um, and, uh, and things looked up, as the saying goes. Well, what was the bright moment from those sort of 15 to... 18 years. Do you recall it? I do. It was definitely the ability to cast off those subjects at school that I was bad at. Um, and as you will recall, in, in all schools, really, you're learning everything until you're about 15, 16. Um, and as I was not very good at two thirds of the subjects, I was always trammeled by this, um, this ball and chain. Um, once I could cast off the things that I was um, bad at, and I, and I was down to doing English and history and theology, um, suddenly it turned out astoundingly that I was considered suddenly rather bright. And also I made a friendship group around that time of people who uh, I, I liked very much and were like-minded and enjoyed uh, we enjoyed each other's sense of humour. I was very well taught. I was lucky. I went to a very famous school. I was at Eton. I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't there. Um, I was taught by extremely um, good teachers who were very often inspiring. I was, was spent five years in a very beautiful campus, if that is the word. Um, for, for those who don't know Eton, it's very much like being at school in Hampton Court Palace or something. Um, it was a, it was a mostly uh, uh, 
a very conventional um, upbringing at school, but also rather a stimulating one. There were clever teachers who taught one in an imaginative way. And I made friends that were different to um, ones uh, that I had at prep school and my vision of the world grew. Uh, so it was a, that was a happy time. Well, you were also very, very, very inspired. You also mentioned your father, but you had a famous member of your family, the theologian Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Oh, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Yes. Well, he's my six times great uncle. So it's sort of direct-ish. Um, but um, I've always been very interested in him. I became interested by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, of course, because we share the same surname. Um, he was the youngest of many, many brothers and sisters. And he was in his day an extremely unconventional figure um, who was famously a, a, a big smoker of opium, which of course a lot of people were in those days for medicinal reasons, but I think he used it as a mind expanding drug. Um, and he wrote poetry, which I think to this day is recognized from uh, poems like Kubla Khan, The Ancient Mariner and others, for having pushed the boundaries of English poetry um, at that time. And I was taught him again and again at school because there, were always, there was always an English teacher each new term who would say, as we have a Coleridge in this class, let us study the work of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I always thought, good, because I've done this at least six times before, and I know all the answers now. But uh, he was a literary, the first sort of literary figure. I yeah. come from a family which was really, um, had its back, uh, most people in my family worked either in the city of London as financial people, or quite a lot of people in our family worked at Christie's, um, the auctioneers, or they were barristers um, and working in the law. So I didn't come from a family where the idea of writing for your living, writing articles, publishing, that kind of world wasn't part of our world. And I discovered it on my, on my own. It was when I was at school that, that there was a very good school magazine there. Goodness, I hope that all schools realize the importance of having a, some sort of school publication, be it online, whether it's digital, whether it's still in paper. But it was a very defining moment for me to be writing, and I developed a slightly kind of, um, I hope, witty writing style. And it was I found it very exciting to see um, my name in print. I mean, it was as simple as that. And then when I was about... 16 or 17, another very defining moment of my life, very formative happened. I had been ill and I was sent home to um, recuperate and I had probably a convalescence lasting maybe 10 days. While I was there, I borrowed from my mother a magazine that's called Harper's and Queen. It was a big glossy magazine, mm. very famous in its day. And I remember, aged 16 and a half perhaps, sitting up in bed as I got better reading these magazines and being absolutely captivated by them. I was captivated by the photography. 
I was captivated by the typography and the design of a glossy magazine. I was captivated by the fact that within the pages, you could have articles of tremendous seriousness, um, which were published side by side with witty, lighter pieces. And I felt that this magazine was like a, it was my Narnian moment when the wardrobe door swung open and I could suddenly see into another world, um, which to me seemed a very attractive world. Um, this is the 16 and a half year old who lived down the end of a long lane in West Sussex, um, uh, surrounded by bracken fields and um, common land and woodland. And I, I admit that I was very fascinated by it. And as I got better during this convalescence, I wrote uh, an article for this magazine and I hand wrote it, which shows how completely amateur I was. And it was on the subject of how to survive teenage parties. And I posted it off when I was better in the post box. This was so far Today, of course, one would have pressed send and, um, and it would have been so easy. But then you put a stamp on an envelope and you put it in a red post box. And about two weeks later, I get a reply saying that they had typed it up and that they were buying this article and it was going to be published in two months' time. And I would say that that was one of the most exciting moments of my life. And as it got closer to the moment of publication, I would go every single day to W.H. Smith's to see whether it, the new issue had come in, and it duly did, and there was my article. What I could see at once was how much better it looked in print um, by the time it had the typography and the artwork and everything was around it. And, it. and I would say that that moment made me think how wonderful it would be to try and work in the magazine industry, which was what I ended up doing. Could you just give us one or two gems about how to survive a teenage party? Well, it was, it was very much, I think, aimed at a, a particular time in the 1970s, if one had grown up in the Hampshire, Sussex area, and it was all about... Um, oh, God, honestly, we were at that funny period when there were... Um, discos that lasted for three hours and there were parents of the um, party goers were sort of watching over one and all we wanted to do was to get our hands on hard liquor and snog a pretty girl um, probably someone we'd met 10 seconds earlier um, it was that kind of weird moment when um you sort of link up with someone with whom you have nothing in common beyond the desire to sort of vaguely kiss them, etc. Um, and then a, a mother would come over and say, well, just not, would you break that up, actually? I think you're going a little far. Everyone spoke like that in my world in those days. Um, and, and so it was. But it was following that period that I started writing a lot for magazines. I, I was very lucky. By the time I had left university, I think I must have written 20 articles for glossy magazines. And it's, it provided me with a parallel life to my university studies. It, I felt that I had half a foot in another world. It made me very lazy, actually, at uni. Um, I was at Cambridge. And when given the choice 
when prioritizing my time between writing an essay that I was going to read out for no money to an audience of one, my tutor, versus writing an article for a glossy magazine and being paid £250 and it being read by 100,000 people. I'm very, very sorry to say that I, that I went for the lower option, and, which was why I did a lot of journalism during those days. <laughs> You're very wise. You're very wise. Now, your second uh, track is In the Crowd by Brian Ferry. I remember it well. Ah, I'm in with the in crowd, it was called. And of course, I, I've chosen it partly as a kind of ironic joke upon myself, because I think at that period, I, I rather wished that I was um, in with some kind of in crowd. And I can remember listening to that song. It came out when I think when I was about 18. And, um, the, and the, the lyrics of it, if it's square, we ain't there, um, was, was one. And it, and it probably rather encapsulated what I wished that my um, life might be like. Today, of course, I look back with a kind of horror about that <laughs> keenness to, um, <laughs> to be successful. But I am old enough now to admit that I did, was driven by that desire to make some kind of mark in journalism because I couldn't think of anything else that I could really do. I wouldn't have been successful in the city, um, and journalism felt like something that I might possibly be able to make scratch a living in, and so it proved to be, so how lucky I was. That period of time in which you were very much appreciating Brian Ferry's Brilliant music. That was a time of of the beginning of a redefinition of diversity. And you you know you've talked to us about the fact that you didn't really meet a black person until you were in your twenties. What what do you remember about Britain back then? That whole well, it was a very different place. It was an extraordinarily different country, um, and and London was a very different city to what it's become. I did actually have one black friend from Nigeria named Keo Amakri, who I still keep in touch with to this very day. In fact, we were um, texting earlier this morning. So, um, so he is still in my life. And then when I was at Cambridge, I had a friend called Wesley Kerr, who later went to the BBC. And were, um, so I wouldn't like to paint a picture that my life was entirely um, without diversity. And I also became early on a, a great enthusiast for India as a country. So from an early age, I made a lot of Indian friends in um, mostly in Rajasthan, and who then, when they came to England, would come and see me. And um, but all that said, what a different world we lived in. I mean, the, the uh, I, I suspect uh, I, certainly for the first three jobs that I had in magazines and later at the Evening Standard, where I wrote a column for a bit. This was a very much an entirely white world. Um, I, I, I think we thought that the audience for whom we were writing was a white world because it was the world that we knew. And probably in those days, in fairness, it was more of a white world because there were fewer um, people who weren't. 
um, in our country. So it was sort of understandable. Um, I don't think it wasn't really until maybe as late as the mid 90s when I began to see people of many different ethnicities who became much more part of, of life. Um, and that was just how it was. I think it was a duller world. In some respects, it was probably an easier world since the definition of it was clearer to all those involved in it. And I'm now, I'm 64 now, um, and definitely the, the way that London has expanded as a city and the opportunities in London and the, the, the composition of London um, it has completely changed it and made it in most respects, I think, a vastly better place than it was um, before. Wonderful. Well, you've had such a wonderful legacy in magazines. You you wrote for Tatler, uh, fashion editor of the Sunday Times, Harper's and Queen. You, you were connected to Harper's and Queen by, by Prince Andrew. Um, and then, of course, you were also involved with rival publications, Hearst and Condé Nast. I mean, how, how did you manage to move so successfully across the writing world? Well, I started as a writing writer, and so for about four years, uh, I was living off the articles that I wrote and the payments that I had. And then I went and rejoined Harpers and Queen, the magazine that I had first written for, and I was deputy editor, and then very soon afterwards, editor of it. And this was extremely lucky, because normally they would have appointed people in their 50s to be, in those days, um, to be editor of Harpers and Queen. It was a very profitable magazine. It was a big title um, and, and, it, and was seen by the publishers as an important one. But they very kindly gave me this opportunity when I was in my very early 30s. I can't remember whether I was, I think I was 31. Um, and this was a very big break. And if you had asked me then, I would have definitely said that I would stay editing Harpers and Queen, perhaps for the rest of my life. I could think of nowhere else that I would rather have been working. And I was able to bring a lot of very talented people onto the magazine. Um, and most of them are still um, very, have become very, very key people in the world of journalism. So we had a little bit of a golden crowd. We certainly all liked each other and appreciated each other very much. And I thought that I would stay there forever. And our rival company was Condé Nast. And Condé Nast produced all the glossy magazines that, wasn't our, that weren't Harpers and Queen. We were sort of the one that they didn't have. And Condé Nast um, had produced Vogue and Tatler and House and Garden and the World of Interiors and later Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Traveller and GQ and all of these kind of magazines. And I saw them as the deadly enemy. They were the, to me, they were the, they were the, 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 the they were the competition um, that we had to, to beat each month. And then out of the blue, uh, the chairman of Condé Nast said, uh, asked me to team in his extraordinarily smart flat. So I think that had quite an influence on me. Because, but, and he was so charming and so interesting. And he said, would I possibly like to leave Harps and Queen and be um, what was called editorial director of the Condé Nast group. 
And it was a very hard decision. I Normally, I make all decisions so fast and quite instinctively. But I thought for at least a month, and it, I found it incredibly hard to decide. And then I decided I would go to um, Condé Nast. And this, of course, was, for me, the beginning of a, a, a really very wonderful period, which lasted for 32 years, where I started as I mentioned, as editorial director. And then I took on being managing director of the British company. And then over time, I took on more responsibility and ended up as um, a position of Condé Nast outside of America. So we were present in, at that time, 27 countries. And I spent a lot of time on an airplane, actually, flying between different countries. We set up businesses in China, published all our magazines there. In India, they were they were published in Japan. They were published all over the all over, wherever there was a market <clears throat> big enough to sustain them. Um, we would get in there, and we ended up doing 139 monthly titles. So the sort of second half of my magazine career, which has been the main career of my life, was a mixture always of editorial and business, both. Um, I've held myself and was held responsible for the bottom line, and I became very adept at understanding um, how the dynamics of magazines can be made to work and they can be made to be very profitable. And it was a golden time, actually. That period, roughly from the beginning of the 1980s until 2015, I would say, was a golden curve for the glossy magazine world. But circulations of practically every title doubled. Um, the advertising grew and grew and grew. We were able to pay our editors very well, I think, on the whole. Um, we employed many interesting diva-like people. Um, where, and, and we had, and, and, and it was very thrilling to be able to, to worked for a um, company outside of America, which had under 1,000 people, and to end up with nearly 5,000 people. It was a great sense of, of progress, and I, I absolutely loved it. And I never lost my, uh, my love of the, a new magazine hitting my desk um, when a new issue comes up. I love the smell of the new magazine. I love when you open a glossy magazine and the way that the ink sits upon the page and you see it reflecting in that kind of way. And of course, during this period, the world was, uh, was, was moving. And so the types of the, the, the scope of these magazines widened. I loved my Indian period um, of magazines when we were um, launching Vogue there and we were launching Architectural Digest there and we were launching Traveller, GQ, the whole world of Bollywood came into it. Very, very, obviously hugely, obviously by definition, very diverse magazines because they were aimed at the local market. And that's what I found so completely interesting. The way that a magazine in any market has to have a sort of sixth sense for what the readers want and what mm. the readers might want next. And I think a successful editor has to be able to empathize with the readership in the broadest 
way. I mean, this, of course, is exactly the same if you're making a television program or if you're uh, running a book publishing company. You have to know your market, but surprise your market as, as well all the time whilst keeping them with you. And one of the most dangerous times for a magazine is when a new editor comes in because sometimes in their desire to make a mark, they want to change everything at once and they want to change the typography and they want to change um, the slant and they want to change the balance. This can be very dangerous because readers can have been reading this mag for um, 10 years and liking it and buying it every month and handing over their £4.90p and taking it home and being proud to be a reader of it. And if a new editor comes in and they, as they see it, spoil it, um, they, can, they can run away. So you, I, like, I always used to like it when an editor took over and made some changes instantly, but mostly changing things over a period of perhaps 18 months. Mm. So the human eye um, didn't feel jarred by the change. So I was a little bit of a magazine doctor um, for a, a long, long period. Well, as a wise magazine doctor, you found yourself on the board, the panel at Vogue, to appoint a new editor. And you chose together Edward Eninful, and you knew very well that, that sales of Vogue often dropped when there were black models on the front pages, front covers of the magazine. So this was potentially a semi-dangerous decision, but obviously a very wise decision. Um, how, did you, how did you work through the possible complexity of making that choice? Well, the thing about Edward is that I think right from the very beginning, he was seen as, of the six, he was one who was always absolutely qualified to do it. His background as being a stylist on American Vogue and the work that he'd done for, for various independent magazines, his reputation in the fashion industry, all of these things preceded him. And he's also, of course, extremely likable. Um, and, 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 and so all of these things were good. You are, it's interesting, the question of covers. You raise the question that I knew that black people on covers sometimes sell fewer. That was definitely the case um, in the 1990s and actually quite a long way into the 2000s, which isn't to say that Vogue at the time didn't. All the Vogues had black models on the cover. Naomi Campbell's career was made from that, and later Jordan, I think she probably has done 100 Vogue covers. But there is no doubt I would see the figures, and people are very funny when they buy magazines. I don't think that they make a racist decision. I think people make they're coming into a shop and they could be going home with one of four mags. They could be thinking, I might buy Vogue, I might buy Harper's Bazaar, I might buy this, I might buy that. Um, and sometimes I think they're almost without realising, they reach out for the cover which most speaks to them. It's a mixture of the image and the cover lines, those two things. People make a decision on whether to buy something. I mean, it could be The Economist or The Spectator. I think the same thing holds true, actually. Um, they make the decision to buy probably in about five seconds. 
by looking two or three cover lines, and they say, oh, look, there's a profile of Lord Michael Hastings. How interesting. And it says underneath, good thing or bad thing. Well, I wonder, which is he? Let's buy it. Um, the, or they don't. Um, that's uh, how it is. Now, of course, um, as the world has become more diverse, I don't think that those same... Um, same statistics would be the same because the fashion world has always been pretty diverse, um, actually. If you go to any fashion college, I sometimes speak in one, and you look at the people who are studying fashion, they are an extremely mixed group, um, which is one of the reasons that I think people adore going to fashion college, actually. If you go into St. Martin's or the London College of Fashion, you would see an extremely diverse group of people. And similarly now, working in fashion companies, um, this level of talent is, is from everywhere. So I don't think that it was a dangerous decision. Um, I, of course, haven't really had to live with the consequences of the decision because I retired age 63 at, uh, uh, about a year after Edward began his very successful editorship of Vogue. Um, but the, uh, but I um, can see, you can smell whether a magazine is successful, actually. You can tell. Um, even without seeing the figures, you can tell by the level of publicity it gets. Today, there's a, I see Vogue has a cover with Adele on the cover. It's going to sell extraordinarily strongly, and it got picked up by all of the papers today. Um, and, and also, Edward Ellenfull is something of an icon in the, uh, in the fashion world now. Um, so I think, he, I, I think he's the story of Vogue moves on, doesn't it? It goes, you know, it's a over 100 years old. Alexandra Shulman, who was the editor for a quarter of a century, immediately before Edward, took it to the highest uh, circulation levels the magazine had, had ever seen. Um, and, and, and then she retired, and now, we, now the magazine has Edward. And I think it's a big, big hit. <laughs> It absolutely is. And just reflect for us for a few moments on, as you as you think about magazines, their glory from the past, but their potential for the future. People now are just reading everything on their phones and their laptops and looking at looking at things digitally. How do you see the commercial future of print? Well, I think that the successful magazines um, are holding on to their circulation in print pretty well. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that The Economist has got its highest ever sales at the moment, and The Week is uh, in print, is doing immensely well. Private Eye does very well. The Spectator is at a record sale. The, the key glossy magazines are holding on strongly, and I think there's a reason for this, actually, in, in that they're so tactile. And people badge themselves by walking along the street holding the new GQ or holding the new Tatler. It says something about them as a person. And the physical beauty of a magazine is extremely hard to replicate online. That said, um, I, as much as anybody, read everything on my phone. That's why I'm losing my eyesight so rapidly now. But... Um, we, we jump around now much more quickly from one thing to another. 
In the olden days, by which I mean 15 or 20 years ago, when you went on a commuter train and you were traveling into London from the countryside or back or on an um, evening train or on the tube, you used to see many, many more people reading magazines. And now you see them staring moony-like at their phone, um, waiting for a like to append itself to something they've put on Instagram. Um, so I have a feeling we might be entering a more, a less educated and less informed world, which I think is a danger. So I hope that the key print magazines will manage to last for at least another 50 years. And my bet is that they probably will. The second division, I would not hold out such hopes. I think they will. Um, I think they will fade away. So you've got to be absolutely sure that the DNA of your magazine is is very good. Well, we absolutely agree that you have to be right on that one because we want them to thrive. Now, well, take us to your take us to your third piece of music, "Laughing With" by Regina Spector. Oh, I love this song. I mean, it's a very, very strange track. Um, I, I've liked it for a while, and it seems particularly meaningful to me because I had very bad COVID um, at the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And um, the, the, the words of this track are very, very poignant. Um, and I also adore her haunting voice. But it was a funny time because... I think for about three days, there was a possibility that I could have died. I caught COVID very early. I was an early adopter. And I was um, was rushed to hospital in an ambulance and, and was put on uh, in intensive care for quite a few days. Um, and then and then was in a ward and um, slowly recovered. I was and, and was, but the hospital <laughs> rang my um, wife. And Georgia put the their call on loudspeaker. Everyone was making supper in the kitchen. And the guy rings from the hospital. He was clearly from some office, if you told me. And he goes, actually, am I going to do my boss? And he goes, hello, is that Mrs. Coleridge? He goes, are you married to Nicholas David Coleridge at all? And she goes, yes, that's my husband. And he says, I'm ringing to tell you that he might not make the night. And well, this was a slight shock for everyone because they were all mixing the pasta sauce and laying the table and <laughs> opening a bottle of wine and things. No one realized I was that ill. So that put a slight damper on the evening's celebration. <laughs> but luckily, 24 hours later, they revised their view and said that they thought I was going to survive. And indeed, I, I, duly, I duly did. <laughs> but it was a funny time because, of course, no one could come and see you in hospital because the whole place was sealed, and um, and 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 it was um, a very frightening time. Not so much for me because I don't remember being particularly frightened by it, but you could see that the nurses were very frightened by it, and the doctors at that point I don't think had very much idea of it. And I was in a ward with. Very elderly man. I mean, the, I, I was the youngest person in it by 25 years. So it was, I felt wonderfully youthful. But it was full of people who'd frankly been ill, poor them, from other diseases and have now caught this dreaded virus. And, and, and I very much hope that they all recovered. But I, I do not know is the answer. It was a, 
a very a rather it was a very chilling place a chill place to be. Um, but then I did recover, and I now spend most of my time or much of my time between the Victoria and Albert Museum, um, which is an extremely interesting time there, where we have all the um, complexities and interest and opportunities of increasing the collections and widening the scope of the collections and building two new museums in East London, which on, from a diversity point of view is very interesting indeed. We've got a great director, Gus Casely Hayford, uh, uh, who is a uh, director of the two East museums reporting to Tristram Hunt, who's like the editor-in-chief, to put it in magazine parlance, um, direct, uh, director-in-chief. Um, and this is very important for the VNA because, as you perhaps know, but I didn't, 54% of all Londoners now live to the east of Tower Bridge. Um, and there are very few museums to the east of Tower Bridge. There's Greenwich, of course. There's the Museum of the Home. Uh, there's the Museum of Childhood, now called Young VNA, which is um, uh, which is in Bethnal Green. But generally speaking, all of the national museums are in West London. Um, and so we're opening two new outlets in East London and taking great care to make sure that the selection of the, of, of the um, collection that's going to be shown there is of relevance, both as an international museum, but also to the, to the people who live in the four boroughs at the centre of which the new museum on the Queen Elizabeth Park in Stratford East is going to sit. And this is a great opportunity for us to show part of the Indian collection, to be able to show some African fashion, to show all kinds of interesting things in a very grown-up way uh, to audiences for whom actually traveling well over an hour uh, to get to the museums of West London may not really be part of their everyday life always. So you really are expanding the, the wonderful impact of the VNA into every every ethnic community you can? Well, trying to, yes. And Tristram Hunt, the director, has been extremely clever. We're setting up a, uh, we have a whole new department of African studies with lots of new curators and who are putting together at the moment, drawing collections, both fashion and artifacts from all the African countries and from the British communities of African and Caribbean background. And I, th and I think it's going to enrich the museum because we have the best possible collections of Chinese, Japanese, Indian, uh, which have been built up over a long period of time. And now, in a sense, the missing piece, um, which was not fully and properly reflected, is, go is going to grow into a, in, into a really proper department um, uh, uh, which will be um, reported um, in in full, um, and, and people will be studying them in a, in a, I think, a very satisfying way. Mm, that's truly magnificent. That's a wonderful set of achievements to come, but also reflecting your your very wide and deep interest and the weight of the role that you have as as chairman of the Victoria and Albert Museum. There was one stage it was really brought very firmly home to you when. You're, you're said to have snubbed Margaret Thatcher. 
Oh, <laughs> the museum was said to have snubbed Margaret Thatcher. It turned out not to be true what at all, but I think to the end of time, people will hope that it was true. The story behind this was that, uh, that Margaret Thatcher had a huge collection. She kept all her clothes, um, rather unusually, um, she kept every item of clothing beautifully kept, each one with a label dangling from it saying where she'd worn it. She, of course, wore her clothes frequently because she was very parsimonious. Um, but it would say, you know, she, she'd spoken, worn this dress at the Conservative Party conference, then she'd worn it at the G7, then she'd worn it uh, somewhere else. They were all kept. And the BNA was ostensibly offered some of these clothes to put into our fashion collections. Um, in actual fact, we weren't, but um, <laughs> the offer was probably going to be made, but it had not been made. So we hadn't turned down uh, her clothes. But the Daily Telegraph got hold of it and had a huge headline, which came out on my first day as chairman, actually, saying Victoria and Albert Museum snubs, disses Lady Thatcher by refusing her collection. And Norman Tevitt was immediately on the Today programme saying that he wasn't at all surprised because we're such a lefty organisation and that uh, it didn't surprise him. And even Boris Johnson came out saying how appalled he was. But then it turned out that we hadn't actually been offered them at all. And now we do, in fact, have in the VNA's collection, which is an amazing collection of clothes. It goes right back to Elizabeth I, and it has pieces that belong to Charles I, and it then goes right to the present day, to the African fashion collection that I spoke of. But now, in the midst of it, quite appropriately, are three power dresses that belonged to Britain's first female prime minister, which people can look at for years to come if they so wish. Oh, wonderful. Well, talking of significant women who lead our country, you are, besides being chairman of the VNA, you're also working on the Queen's Jubilee pageant for 2022. Just what can you tell us about the plans? Well, I'm co-chair of this great event. Um, there's a long tradition that monarchs, when they've done a set number of years, have a great parade. This is going to be, I hope, a very interesting um, event. I can't give every detail yet because it's too early, but I can tell you it's going to have a mixture of a big ceremonial section, of, which will have a, a lot of military in it. It's then going to have a big creative arts section where we're going to have people from literally dozens of different theatre groups doing um, different things. It's going to be very diverse. It's going to have um, a big sustainability and ecological credentials. Um, and it's going to have many, many surprises in it. And what I hope we think it's going to do is first and foremost to applaud the Queen, who in, I think has been completely sensational, actually. It's going to have representation from all 54 of the Commonwealth countries. Uh, it's going to have uh, people from all over the Union, so Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales will be deeply part of it. It's going to have people from the levelling up, the levelling down, everyone is going to be in it, um, uh, from every part of the nation. 
And I think that what we're all hoping is that as we come out of this period, finally, of the ravages of COVID and the complexities of the what has been, I think, an ex a very challenging uh, 15 months for many, many people, um, and that this is going to be a moment of joyous celebration, which might make us, with any luck, feel united momentarily as one nation and one country and one people, making sure that people from um, every ethnicity of our country um, feel that they're part of it too. So that's what we're going, that's what we're going to do. Um, so, and, it, and it's on June the 5th next year, June the 5th, 2022. Date marked. Now we ask all of our guests finally if they'll make a future pledge. Just something about yourself or your life or your impact. What would you want to pledge yourself to? I want to pledge myself to being a little bit less stressed than I sometimes am and making more time to listen more deeply to all kinds of people who come into my life and not always rushing on to the next thing. Um, I'm still in a period of my life when sometimes time is slightly too much uh, at a premium and too tight, mostly because I can't resist saying yes to things. But actually, um, one of the things that I liked about lockdown was having enforced leisure and spending um, six months during that amazing weather that marked the first lockdown when the skies were blue and there wasn't an aeroplane in the sky and nobody rang and no one came and you couldn't have anyone to lunch or supper and you couldn't you could do a few zoom calls but generally life was very very much quieter and i got some sense of what it was like would have been like to have lived in the 18th century or something when um you had a much smaller circle of people that you were in touch with so i hope that there's going to be more leisure and more time to see my friends and more time to see lots of different people that I've met during my career who I would like to see more of. So that's, it's not much of a pledge and rather a selfish pledge, but it's what I'm thinking right now. Well, sadly, I think that's all we've got time for and we could sit and talk all day long. Thank you, Nicholas Coleridge, for joining me today, opening up about your fascinating life and remarkable relationships and your future aspirations and i know this episode will stay with us for a very long time please join us next time on bbi's you're on mute where we hear from another icon a business leader or a famous personality until then please subscribe review leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from if you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fairer society please contact us at info at blackbusinessinstitute.com until the next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.